just proclaiming the, the greatness of our Savior, our greatness of our Lord, victory over death and sin and hell and eternal life, that eternal hope for those who trust in Jesus. Just amazing words. Great to worship God together. Uh, on your seat, there's an outline on the back of your bulletin, so if that's helpful as we go through the uh, um, passage today, then it's there for you if you want to use that, and all the verses are going to be up on the screen. Uh, last year, we had two weeks holiday in um, Whitby in North Yorkshire. We had a day out in Whitby. We weren't staying in Whitby for the two weeks, but we, were, we had a day out in Whitby, and uh, I was looking for something fun, something different to do uh, with the, the family that the uh, family would all enjoy. Instead of the usual groans and moans, not looking through graveyards for my ancestors' gravestones and things like that. So a little bit more interesting, so we did do a bit of that. But we went to Whitby, we walked along the quayside, and we found uh, one of these little trips out in a boat out into the North Sea for half an hour or so. And uh, we walked along the quayside, and we found this particular uh, vessel that we, we settled on. And there's a picture of it here for you. This is the, uh, it's, it's a replica of HMS Endeavour, which was the ship that Captain Cook went to Australia and New Zealand in. This is a 40% replica, so this isn't as big as the actual one. But this, this boat takes you out to sea, takes you down, out through the pierheads, out into the North Sea, and you go up towards Sands End, which is kind of north, and then it turns around and it goes back. It takes about half an hour. It was great fun, absolutely fantastic, but everything changed we're kind of just nicely going along. There's no, there's no actual sails. It's just uh, under motor power. And uh, as we were going out and you, and you reach the pier heads, and those of you who've sailed before will, will know what happens, suddenly as we went out beyond the pier heads, all of a sudden, whoa, we were up and down and up and down. And uh, we, as, as, as we met the open water, everything changed, and it suddenly became a very different um, uh, prospect. And Naomi wasn't particularly impressed with this, it has to be said. And she just kind of sat clung to the mast in the middle and didn't move and was just giving me evil glares all the way through the, the trip. And even though the sea looked really calm, and by North Sea standards, there, was, there, weren't, there weren't any white tops on the waves, there wasn't much of a swell at all. But actually, when you get out there and in a little boat like this, it does just do this all the way up and down. And on a fairly frequent basis, the folks that were sat at the front, I, I've been out on boats, open boats before, uh, with, with work and things like that, so I kind of knew what to expect. And lots of folks had uh, naively sat at the front and, of course, as they went out, they were getting soaked, wave after wave, soaking them. And I sat rather smugly at the back, uh, out of the waves. It was great fun. It was totally safe. We weren't ever in any danger. But it did demonstrate to me just how, how scary and um, uh, dangerous, actually, uh, sailing can be. We were never in any danger, and the waves weren't really anything at all. But it felt like we were in a storm at times. It really did. We were kind of going up and down. Now, I would hate to be out at sea in a real storm. That was just a little bit of an up and down and a little wooden boat. But I would hate to be out at sea in a real storm. And I certainly wouldn't want to be out at sea in a wooden sailing vessel without kind of modern safety uh, equipment and so on. You've only got to go to some of the coastal towns and villages around the UK, I guess in other countries too, and you'll see the number of memorials to people who've died in, 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 uh, over the years in various tragedies, particularly fishermen over the years. And, and it just shows how many people have died before modern safety, the RNLI, and things like that. Modern lifeboats existed, and safety has improved on ships. Well, in today's passage, which is Acts 27, we're going to be looking at the account of Paul's journey from Caesarea, which was on the coast of what is now modern-day Israel, all the way to Rome. But unfortunately, uh, in, in today's passage, he only gets as far as Malta. He was meant to be going to Rome, but he ends up shipwrecked in Malta due to a terrible storm. And the ship that Paul and his companions were sailing on was... Uh, a little bit bigger than this little thing here. 
It would have been a large grain transport ship. It was going from Egypt across to Rome. Uh, it had 276 people on board. It would have had hundreds of tons of grain. And it was a significant ship. Uh, historical records probably indicate it was something around about the size of HMS Victory. There's a picture there of HMS Victory. It wouldn't have looked like that with all the guns and so on, but it's about that kind of size ship. So this isn't a little sailing ship. Kind of have an idea, perhaps, of Paul and a few guys huddled in a little ship from Sunday school lessons. It's nothing like this. This is a significantly big ship, a big sailing ship of its day. Now, we had to hold on tight and dodge a few waves for about 10 minutes or so, and it was all good fun, even if Naomi didn't really think so. But, but on Paul's voyage, what we read is that they had to endure a storm that lasted for 14 days and nights, and it destroyed their ship. So let's read the next part of that account from Acts 27. Acts is the... the is short for the Acts of the Apostles. This is the Acts or or the the kind of history of the early church from around 33 AD to about 60 AD. And it's just a story of the spread of the Christian faith right across the Roman Empire as the people who Jesus had trained and met with and so on sent them out and they went and took the, the, uh, the gospel, the good news about Jesus all across the Roman Empire. And this is coming towards the end of the, of this account. Okay, so we're going to look at Acts 27, and uh, what we've seen over the last few weeks as we've been going through Acts is how Paul was determined to get to Rome. God had told him to go to Rome, that he was going to go to Rome, and he was going to uh, tell people about Jesus there. And we've seen how he, he, was arre- he was kind of nearly lynched by the mob in Jerusalem. The Roman soldiers uh, uh, intervened, they rescued him, he was then arrested by the soldiers. He was tried before being sent to Caesar in Rome. And, and that was because Paul had exercised his right as a Roman citizen to, to, ha- to stand trial before Caesar, uh, which was Nero in Rome. And so he was sent off to Rome with an escort, uh, a Roman centurion, and in the company of Luke, who wrote this book, Acts, and also a guy called Aristarchus. And there may have been others too, but they're the three that are, are named in, in Acts. So we're going to read Acts 27. We're going to read the whole chapter. If you've got a Bible, you can read along with me, or you can just listen as I read the verses to you. So Acts 27. Uh, in fact, we'll read from verse 32 of chapter 26, which is the last verse of chapter, 30, uh, of chapter 26. Agrippa said to Festus, this man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. When it was decided that we would sail for Italy, Paul and some other prisoners were handed over to a centurion named Julius, who belonged to the Imperial Regiment. We boarded a ship from wherever that was, about to sail for ports along the coast of the province of Asia, and we put out to sea. Aristarchus, a Macedonian from Thessalonica, was with us. The next day we landed at Sidon, and Julius, in kindness to Paul, allowed him to go to his friends so that they might provide for his needs. From there we put out to sea again and passed to the Lee of Cyprus because the winds were against us. When we had sailed across the open sea off the coast of Sicilia, sorry, Cilicia and Pamphylia, we landed at Myra in Lycia. There the centurion found an Alexandrian ship sailing for Italy and put us on board. We made slow headway for many days and had difficulty arriving off Cnidus. When the wind did not allow us to hold our course, we sailed to the Lee of Crete opposite Salmon. We moved along the coast with difficulty and came to a place called Fair Havens near the town of Lycia. Much time had been lost and sailing had already become dangerous because by now it was after the fast or the Day of Atonement. So Paul warned them, men, I can see that our voyage is going to be disastrous and bring great loss to ship and cargo and to our own lives also. But the centurion, instead of listening to what Paul had said, followed the advice of the pilot and of the owner of the ship. Since the harbour was unsuitable to winter in, the majority decided that we should sail on, hoping to reach Phoenix and winter there. This was a harbour in Crete facing both southwest and northwest. 
When a gentle south wind began to blow, they thought they had obtained what they wanted, so they weighed anchor and sailed along the shore of Crete. Before very long, a wind of hurricane force, called the Northeaster, swept down from the island. The ship was caught by the storm and could not head into the wind, so we gave, to, we gave way to it and were driven along. As we passed to the lee of a small island called Corda, we were hardly able to make the lifeboat secure. When the men had hoisted it aboard, they passed ropes under the ship itself to hold it together. Fearing that they would run aground on the sandbars of Sirtis, they lowered the sea anchor and let the ship be driven along. We took, we took such a violent battering from the storm that the next day they began to throw the cargo overboard. On the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days and the storm continued raging, we finally gave up all hope of being saved. After the men had gone a long time without food, Paul stood up before them and said, Men, you should have taken my advice not to sail from Crete. Then you would have spared yourself this damage and loss. But now I urge you to keep up your courage, because not one of you will be lost. Only the ship will be destroyed. Last night, an angel of the God who, whose I am and whom I serve stood beside me and said, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand trial before Caesar, and God has graciously given you the lives of all who sail with you. So keep up your courage, men, for I have faith in God that it will happen, just as he told me. Nevertheless, we must run aground on some island. On the 14th night, we were still being driven across the Adriatic Sea, when about midnight the sailors sensed they were approaching land. They took soundings and found that the water was 120 feet deep. A short time later, they took soundings again and found it was 90 feet deep. Fearing that we would be dashed against the rocks, they dropped four anchors from the stern and prayed for daylight. In an attempt to escape from the ship, the sailors let the lifeboat down into the sea, pretending they were going to lower some anchors from the bow. Then Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, Unless these men stay with the ship, you cannot be saved. So the soldiers cut the ropes that held the lifeboat and let it fall away. Just before dawn, Paul urged them all to eat. For the last 14 days, he said, you have been in constant suspense and have gone without food. You haven't eaten anything. Now I urge you to take some food. You need it to survive. Not one of you will lose a single hair from his head. After he said this, he took some bread, gave thanks to God in front of them all. Then he broke it and began to eat. They were all encouraged and ate some food themselves. Altogether, there were 276 of us on board. When they had eaten as much as they wanted, they lightened the ship by throwing the grain into the sea. When daylight came, they did not recognize the land, but they saw a bay with a sandy beach where they decided to run the ship aground if they could. Cutting loose the anchors, they left them in the sea and at the same time untied the ropes that held the rudders. Then they hoisted the foresail to the wind and made for the beach. But the ship struck a standbar and ran aground. The bow stuck fast and would not move and the stern was broken to pieces by the pounding of the surf. The soldiers planned to kill the prisoners to prevent any of them from swimming away and escaping. But the centurion wanted to spare Paul's life and kept them from carrying out their plan. He ordered that those who could swim to, sh to jump up overboard first and get to land. The rest were to get there on planks or on pieces of the ship. In this way, everyone reached land in safety. And the verse, verse 1 of 28 says, Once safely on shore, we found out that the island was called Malta. And if you go to Malta, I haven't been to Malta, but if you go to Malta today, you can visit St. Paul's Bay and you can see roughly whereabouts he would have uh, come ashore. This was all about Paul going to Rome. Going to Rome to preach the good news and to testify right there at the heart of the Roman Empire. 
God had told Paul that when he'd been arrested in Jerusalem that he was going to go to Rome. Look at uh, this verse. That The following night the Lord stood near Paul and said, Take courage, as you've testified about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. It was Paul's plan, it was Paul's vision to go and preach about Jesus right at the heart of the Roman Empire, right in Caesar's presence in Rome. And it was God's plan for that to happen too. This was God's plan. He was leading him and taking him to, uh, to go and do this. So Paul knew that he was going to Rome. He knew what the end game was, but he still had to get from Israel to Rome. And the quickest way in those days for that to happen was to go by sea. So as we read, Festus handed Paul over to a Roman centurion called Julius and, and Luke, who wrote Acts, another man called Aristarchus, were also allowed to go along. And they set off from a ship, uh, they set off on a ship from Caesarea in what is modern day Israel, and they sailed all the way to a place called Myra, which is located now on what is the sort of southwest tip of Turkey. There's a picture here of the, the map of Paul's journey. They went up towards Turkey, above Cyprus, up to uh, the southwest tip of Turkey, then across and round uh, underneath Crete, and then across and eventually being shipwrecked uh, at Malta. And then as we'll see next week and the week after, Paul then uh, recontinued his journey and ended up eventually in Rome. So when he got to Myra, he changed ships, and they boarded a grain ship which was en route from Egypt, Alexandria and Egypt, all the way to Rome. It was the, uh, the grain from Egypt that pretty much fed Rome and, and made it possible for the population there to eat. But despite Paul's warnings, the centurion decided to go with what the captain said of the ship and continue with the journey. Despite the fact that Paul had said, this is a bad idea, they decided they'd go ahead with it. It was accepted that it was unsafe to sail after the 15th of September. That was the kind of dangerous period when nobody did big, big sea journeys in the Mediterranean in those days, after the 15th of September. This, however, was at least on the 6th of October. And we know that because this took place in 59 AD. And in 59 AD, the Jewish feast, the fast, as it, as it was referred to, or the Day of Atonement, it took place on the 5th of October in that year. And Luke says that the Day, of Oct- the Day of Atonement had already taken place. So this is at least the 6th of October and possibly later. So we're now well into October. And Paul knows and everybody else knows that it's going to be unsafe to take this journey. But they carried on regardless of what Paul said. And they ended up facing 14 days and 14 nights of terrible storms which ended up with the ship running aground in Malta. Paul and Luke and Aristarchus must have wondered what was happening, and and Luke certainly thought that he was going to die. In verse 20, he says this, When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days and the storm continued raging, we finally gave up all hope of being saved. It must have been really confusing to them. On the one hand, Paul was absolutely certain that he was going to Rome. Jesus had told him that in a vision. Paul was absolutely certain he was going to Rome. God had personally told him that in a vision. But on the other hand, they were experiencing a horrendous storm, and the situation they were in seemed to kind of contradict what Paul had been told by God. And Luke certainly thought they were going to die. We don't know what's really in Paul's head, because Luke doesn't tell us. But certainly, at the very least, I would imagine they would have been confused and just wondering what was really going to happen. I guess that raises for us the challenge of how we respond and react when we sometimes find ourselves in the storms of life that we all sometimes face. Despite Sometimes believing that we're following God's plan and direction as best we know, we find that following God's plan leads us into a storm. It might be a physical storm like Paul faced. More likely for us, it will be perhaps a health storm, a financial storm, a relationship storm, something that that kind of feels to us like a storm. 
storm in life. And when we find ourselves in those situations, which we will from time to time, and if we haven't, or if we're not currently at the minute, we will be at some point in the future, that is life, then the challenge in those situations is to keep trusting that God is in control. Despite appearances to the contrary, and that must have what it must have been seemed like to Paul and certainly to Luke and the others that, that God was kind of that God had lost control, that it was seemed to be different to what they'd been promised. The challenge for us is to keep trusting, keep believing that God is in control. See, the Bible teaches us and shows us that God sometimes takes us into storms, even if we're unable to work out why. Sometimes the storms we find ourselves in are of our own making. But equally, there are times when through no fault of our own and and through doing what we believe God is calling us to do, we find ourselves in storm-like situations, like Paul did. And we find ourselves in that storm-like situation, even though we've been following what we believe God has called us to do. We've been following where God has been leading us. And when that happens, it can be really challenging. It can be really confusing. And so when we find ourselves in storm-like situations, we're called to believe that God is still in control and is at work in and through the storms that we face. Paul certainly had been led into this storm by God. Sometimes people say, well, it can't be God's will because it's all gone wrong. Have you ever heard that? When people are in a situation or they're commenting on someone else's life and they say, well, it can't be God's will because it's all gone wrong. And if it was God's will, it would have worked out really well. Or people say the opposite. They'll say, well, it must be God's will because everything's going so well. That's not what the Bible teaches. That isn't what the Bible teaches. The presence or the absence of what we would see as blessings are not an indication that we are or are not doing God's will. Paul was slap bang in the middle of God's will. He was going to Rome just as the Lord had told him he would. And the Lord had led him into this situation. And yet, despite being right at the center of God's will, he still found himself in a horrendous situation. Paul wasn't in that situation because he had sinned or because he'd done something wrong or because he was outside of God's will. He found himself there because God had taken him into that storm. So what I'm saying is this. If and when we find ourselves in one of life's storms, don't make the assumption that because life has become difficult that you're not doing God's God's will. Equally, if everything is going really well and you feel you're really blessed, don't make the assumption, the wrong assumption, that you are doing God's will. The two things are not necessarily linked. God will often lead us into storms and he is just as much in control when we're in a storm as when all is in well, as when all is well. Sometimes after the event, we're able to, to see and understand why God led us into that storm. Other times we're not. And we may never know this side of eternity why we went through that particular situation or difficulty. Regardless, the call is to trust that, that God is in control and that God is at work in and through that storm. It may be this morning that you're in a storm-like situation. Maybe you got yourself into it. Or maybe God led it. God led you into it. Either way, God is still in control. Whatever the cause, whatever's at the root of this, God is still in control. And God is at work in your life. So write this down. We need to trust that God is at work in our storms. We need to trust that God is at work in our storms. It can be really tempting to believe when things go wrong that that, that God has lost control or somehow that we're out of God's will. God is always in control, and we need to take that step to keep trusting. So whatever storms you have faced, are facing, or will face, God is in control, and God is at work. And God can, can, God can turn around and does turn around for our good the things that we do that are wrong. 
Paul himself wrote these words. He says, For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on, but on what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. Now, it's not that Paul is belittling or making light of troubles. And if you're in a storm-like situation this morning, please don't think I'm belittling or saying that your, light and, your troubles are light and momentary. Because they're not, because they're real and they're painful and they're difficult. But what Paul is saying is, look, in comparison to eternity, our troubles in this life are light and they are momentary. What Paul is also saying is that God is at work in our troubles and in our storms. And though and through these troubles and storms, he's achieving for us an eternal glory. And our response to the storms that we find ourselves in really does make an eternal difference. There are times, however, when we find ourselves in storms and it's because we've done wrong and we've turned away from God. God is no less in control, but perhaps the reason we find ourselves in that difficulty is directly as a result of our sin, of our rebellion against God. And God uses sometimes tough situations as a kind of slap to bring us back to our senses, to kind of wake us up and bring us back to reality. It's what the Bible calls God's discipline. We read these words in Hebrews 12. My son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline and do not lose heart when he rebukes you because the Lord disciplines the one he loves and he chastens everyone he accepts as a son. Endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as his children. God disciplines us for our good in order that we may share in his holiness. No discipline seems pleasant at the time but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who've been trained by it. Now there's a sense in which all the hardships and storms that we face in life are God's discipline. Because discipline is about uh, God using life situations and circumstances to train us to become more like Jesus. But some discipline is specifically about God bringing us back to our senses. It's not punishment. God never punishes those who've trusted in him for salvation. He punishes those who reject him. But those who've been trusted, and and that's called a lost eternity, it's what the Bible calls hell. But those who've trusted in him, God will never punish, but he does discipline. He will discipline those he loves. And sometimes God will have to discipline us and put us through and, and, and expose us to unpleasant circumstances in order to get our attention, to bring us back from sin. Paul found himself in a terrible storm at sea, not because he had sinned, just because he was following God's will. But Jonah in the Old Testament found himself in a similar situation because he was running away from God and he was being disobedient. God had told him to go and preach in what is now modern-day Syria, in a city called Nineveh. Jonah said, no way, I'm not going there. There was a whole number of reasons, but he didn't want to go there. So he got on a ship to sail to the western end of the Mediterranean. And God brought about a storm to bring Jonah to his senses and to stop him, make him, and, and give him that opportunity to repent and turn around and go God's way. And it may be that the storm that you're facing this morning, whatever that is in your life, or the storms that we face in the future, are a means of God bringing you back, bringing you back to your senses, to help you repent, to help you turn away from that running away from God that maybe you're engaged in. And if that's the case, then can I encourage you this morning? Can I plead with you? Don't run away from God. Embrace God's discipline, painful though it often is and sometimes can be. Repent, get back on track with God and go in the direction that God calls you to and to live for him. Now, now Paul was in in a different situation. Paul wasn't under discipline. Every situation is discipline in one sense, but he wasn't under discipline for sin. 
Paul was in the enviable position of having heard directly from God through a vision. He knew that God was taking him to Rome. So he knew that God was in control. We don't know what Paul was thinking during the storm, especially as it seemed they were all about to die. Knowing myself, I suspect that if that had been me, even though Jesus had appeared to me personally and told me I was going to Rome, I would still in that moment have had some real doubts. You know, when the waves were crashing over the ship, when the the ship's beginning to fall apart, even that massive certainty, I've seen Jesus and he's told me he's going to run. I suspect, certainly if it was me, I would begin to nevertheless question, is this really going to happen? Did I really see Jesus? Did that really happen? Uh, Am I just imagining that? It'd be difficult, wouldn't it? And we don't know what's in Paul's mind. We don't know. We can only speculate. Maybe this morning God has unmistakably spoken to you about something in the past. But the storms of life have knocked you off track. Maybe God has, a bit like Paul, God has really spoken to you clearly, unmistakably, unequivocally about a path for your life. But the storms of life have just kind of knocked you off path. And it seems to you maybe right now or or historically that you're like Paul in that ship and it's all just going to go horribly wrong. I want to encourage you and challenge you this morning to cling on to what God has said to you. Keep trusting him. Keep believing him despite the size of the waves that you are experiencing. But the reality is that for most of us, most of the time, we don't have such a clear vision, an unequivocal sense that God has said this. I've never had a vision of Jesus where he's come to me and said, you're going to go here or you're going to do that. I've received prophecies. I've had words of knowledge from people. I've read verses of the Bible where I've really sensed that God was speaking to me. And I've really sensed that God has laid things on my heart to do or to say, but I've never had something as clear as Paul's vision here. In Acts 23.11. And most of the time, what happens, I guess, for most of us, if we're honest, is that we, that we believe we're following God's direction. And to the best of our knowledge, we're doing what we believe God has called us to do. And that's from kind of a general sense of what God is saying to us. But it's rare that we get to be as certain as Paul was. Because we've not had a personal uh, vision of Jesus where he's unmistakably spoken to us and so when we find ourselves in storm-like situations like Paul it can be all the harder to keep to keep going and to keep trusting God because then all the doubts flood in well I read that verse you know but but was that really God what was you know what is really going on and that and that can be really difficult when we find ourselves in those situations when we're not absolutely 100% certain what God has called us to do And I think there are two key issues we need to think through in these situations. Firstly, we need to be really sure that we've heard from God and not just what we'd like to think we've heard. It's very easy to decide that God has spoken to us through a Bible verse or through some other situation when it coincides with what we'd already like to do. We've already got a desire to do something and it's very easy to to kind of cling on to things and, and buy into things that maybe are not from God. Adrian Plass tells the story in his sacred diary of Adrian Plass, aged 37 and three quarters, of the guy who approached his church elders and told them that he really believed God was calling him to go to Israel. And when the elders of the church asked him to perhaps explain what, you know, how God had led him in, and, and how he'd arrived at this viewpoint, he says, well, you know, every time I open the Bible, the word Israel just keeps popping up. And, you know, sometimes our reasoning behind the decisions we make isn't much better than that. Just be, you know, the Bible isn't a horoscope. We don't just open it up. Bing, oh, there's that. I'm not going to build my whole life on that. God can and miraculously does speak through Bible verses he has to me. But we need to be careful. And so we've got to be really careful before we announce to people that, that God has spoken to us or told us to do something. 
We've got to be equally careful about how we use the promises that the Bible gives. Many of the promises in the Old Testament are specifically to the nation of Israel in terms and in the context of the covenant relationship that God had with them. And they're not applicable to us as the church today. Yet many people take Old Testament verses and they claim the promises and decide that God has said that they're going to be healthy and wealthy and successful, for instance. And we've just got to be really careful. Now, God might be saying that, but we've got to be really careful that we don't take a verse completely out of context. And so if we sense that God is speaking to us through a particular Bible verse and it's in the Old Testament, we've just got to really be sure about that because the context often will be quite different. One of the verses that we throw around liberally is, I know the plans I have for you, plans to prosper you, etc., That is ripped horribly out of context. The context there is about the nation of Israel. Now, God may be saying that to to us, and and, and that is true for every Christian in one sense, because God's plans for us are to to give us good things. But we've got to be careful that we don't rip stuff out of context and begin to build our whole lives on verses that God has given to other people in different contexts at different times. So we need to be careful and don't rush in to do that. Second issue issue is to understand what God has actually promised us and what our hope and goal is really meant to be as followers of Jesus. Because the hope and the goal of the follower of Jesus is not primarily victory over our current circumstances, or that God will give us health and wealth. Now, it's not wrong to pray for victory over our current circumstances. Don't get me wrong. It's not, it's not wrong to pray for good health. It's not wrong to pray for God's financial provision. We should pray big prayers. We should pray into the circumstances and the trials that we find ourselves in. We should pray in big faith. We, we should step out in faith, and we should pray big prayers. But our hope... and Ultimately, the Christian life is not about victory over those current circumstances. Our, the, the Christian life is about our ultimate hope and our ultimate goal. And our goal and our hope is Jesus himself. That is the Christian hope. It's not victory over the current circumstances, which may or may not happen. Paul wrote these words to Titus. He said, we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. We may or may not be blessed with health and wealth or, or with victory over the storms in our lives or with great success in our lives or the life of our church. But regardless of whether we are or not, our focus, our hope as followers of Jesus is not in the temporary things of this life. Our focus should be on our eternal hope. That eternal future that we have with Jesus. Where sin is gone, where there's no more death, and where God is finally worshipped as he should be. Paul says this in Philippians 3.20, But our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a saviour from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control, will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. That is our hope. That is what we've been promised. That is what's certain. Whether or not we'll get that job, fix that relationship, or or, or see our health improved, those things are less clear. We should pray into those. We should step out in faith. We should ask God for great things. And we should pray big prayers and, and, and and have great boldness and faith and believe God for great things. But God will not always answer our prayers or give us what we want because he knows best and he has a bigger picture at work. Those things are less clear. God certainly hasn't promised those things to us in the Bible. And we need to be really careful before we make claims about what God has promised to us. What we can say with certainty, because the Bible says so, is this. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? Paul doesn't say, you pray and all those things will disappear. 
He says those things are going to happen, but they're not going to separate us from the love of God. As it is written, he says, for your sake we face death all day long. We're considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So whatever storms we face, we know that nothing can separate us from the love of God, from God's love and from that eternal hope that we have in Christ. And that is our ultimate goal. That is our ultimate hope. And we know that God is at work in and through our storms, achieving his purposes, even if we're, able, if, if we're unable to fully understand what his purposes are this side of eternity. And, and the reality is that many of the storms in life that we face, we will never really know. I really don't know what that was about. I'm really not sure what God was doing in that. That's certainly my experience. There are many situations in my life, I'm not really sure what God was doing in that. And there'll be things that we will never know until we get to glory to be with Jesus. As Paul found himself on this ship in the midst of this terrifying storm, he took charge of the situation. And despite the fact that he was the prisoner, he emerges as the leader by default. He must have been a phenomenal force of character, mustn't he? 276 men, Roman soldiers and all the rest of it. And Paul actually steps up and becomes the leader, even though he's the prisoner. He stands up before 275 other men. He proclaims his faith and his trust and his belief in God in the midst of a terrifying situation. Look at verses 23 and 24. Last night, this is what Paul says as he stands up. He says, last night, an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I serve stood beside me and said, do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand trial before Caesar and God has graciously given you the lives of all who sail with you. We are rarely going to have the same kind of definite knowledge and information that Paul had. But we should nevertheless proclaim our trust in God when we face the storms of life that will inevitably come. Those around us, Christians and non-Christians alike, will be watching us as we go through our storms, whether they're health storms, relationship storms, financial storms, whatever else they might be. We have a, a watching world, watching for how we will respond. And it's not that the Lord wants us to pretend that you know, we're not bothered by the storms or that everything is, is fine when it's not. God doesn't want us to be dishonest, not at all. We need to be honest, we need to be real. But in the midst of our honesty and being real about how we feel when we've lost our job, about having relationship struggles or when our health is falling apart, we can still demonstrate faith in God. We can still cling on and say, yeah, my week has been rubbish, but. My finances are a disaster, but my health has fallen apart, but I will trust the Lord. We can demonstrate our faith in God, that he will help us in the current storms, even if he he may not remove us from those storms. And we can demonstrate our faith in the eternal hope of life beyond death with Jesus forever. When the men... On this ship had barely eaten anything for for two weeks. Paul made them eat properly. And he led them in a public prayer of thanksgiving. It's it's an amazing moment with the ships all over the place. And Paul stands up and he gives thanks for food. Look at what he said. Look, Look at what happens. After he said this, he took some bread and gave thanks to God in front of them all. Then he broke it and began to eat. They were all encouraged and ate some food themselves. Paul was clearly a unique leader, a unique individual. And we're not all like Paul. 
we're not all going to be able to capable of, of doing that and stepping out and, and leading a whole group of people like that. Nevertheless, the challenge for us is to stay focused on God ourselves in the midst of our storms and to demonstrate that in whatever way we can to those around us. And by this simple act of publicly giving thanks to God for his food, Paul demonstrated his ongoing relationship with God. He demonstrated his ongoing trust and his faith in God. And he pointed this large group of men who were pagans and who would have worshipped all sorts of different gods and idols. He was pointing them to the one true God. This was an act of thanksgiving. It was an act of faith, but it was also an act of evangelism. Now, don't get me wrong, I'm not suggesting that tomorrow we all stand up on our desks at work and give thanks for our food and call everybody else to to give thanks over lunch. But what we can nevertheless do is stop when we eat. And we should do this anyway, because we should always be thanking God for his provision for us. But we can, in public, at work, we can bow our heads, we can make it clear that we're, we're taking just a moment out to say thank you to God. We don't need to do that out loud, but we can very publicly, nevertheless, nail our colors to the flagpole. And make it clear that, that our faith, our trust is in the God that we love. We've got non-Christian guests in our home. We should absolutely publicly give thanks for our food in front of them. This is, that's a really simple but powerful way of pointing them to God. It's our home after all. But in a wider sense as that, as we go through the storms of life, we, we can and we should demonstrate our ongoing trust in God to those around us so that they can see that doesn't mean that we pretend everything's fine. doesn't mean that we hide the reality. But in the midst of our honesty and struggles and pain, we continue to put our trust in God. We should be honest about how we feel. We should be honest and accept that, yeah, I've got lots of questions. I don't understand everything that's happened to me or is, or is happening to me. But I'm still going to trust in God. When we're in the storm, write this down, God wants us to declare our trust in him to those around us. And that can be in simple ways. We don't want it to be fake. This, this needs to be genuine, but it can only be genuine if we're making that daily internal choice to trust that God is at work in the storms. We can't just put this on. We can't pretend. It's got to be real. And it will only be real if it is real. It will only be real if we're making that daily choice to keep trusting God through the storms. If you're not in a storm at the moment, it's a fact of life that you will face one of some nature sooner or later. That, that is life. And whether the storm was of your making, whether it was caused by somebody else, whatever the, the reasoning, that humanly speaking, by, as we look at it, God is at work in that storm. The Lord may or may not perform miracles to rescue you from your storm. But whether he does or not, and it's interesting here, Paul doesn't perform a miracle. God doesn't perform a miracle. He doesn't rescue them from the storm. They end up washed up on bits of wood on a beach. They live, but just. There's no miracle here. God may or may not perform a miracle to rescue you, but whether he does or not, our hope, our focus is meant to be on the eternal rescue. That is where our focus comes, on the eternal rescue that God has provided by sending Jesus to die on the cross to take the punishment for our sins so that we can have our sins forgiven and removed and we can have a right relationship with God. We can have eternal life and live with God forever. That is where our focus and our hope sits, or it should be. So whether or not the Lord delivers us from the storm we face, we will continue to trust him and live for him. That is the challenge. That is the call for each one of us today. Let's just take a few moments to bow our heads this morning 
And in this moment of quiet, let's just bring the storms that we have, those storms that we're facing to God right now. Maybe you feel anger. Maybe you feel pain. Well, tell God how you feel. God is big enough to take our anger and our frustrations and our questions. He knows what we're thinking anyway. And to be honest in those moments, if it's just a, a simple cry for help, or perhaps a, a rededication, Lord, I am struggling, but I'm going to continue to trust you, Lord Jesus. It's horrible, but I keep on trusting you, Lord Jesus. If we need to repent, if, if we're in a situation more like Jonah this morning, where you've been running from God, and your life's a little bit of a mess because of sin, then repent. Turn back to God. And get back on the path that God called you to.